0: The title of the talk this evening is Practice Here and There, Practice Everywhere. So, here we are, all of us, um, coming to the end or close to the end of an intensive practice period, here. And soon uh, to be taking yourself taking your practice out there, wherever there is for you, which for most of you actually will entail a much longer period of intensive practice, with the possibility of wherever you go, wherever you are, there's your practice. I think that um, many of us come to the end of a retreat with some of the same thoughts and some of the same feelings that really aren't so dissimilar uh, to those that we maybe came into retreat with. So for many people, though, there's maybe a feeling of excitement and a readiness uh, to go into an extended uh, practice period of intensive practice. Uh, For some, just before it's time to enter in, there might be the feeling that, well, I'm not quite finished out here. Maybe just a few more days, uh, another week, so that I can... uh, do all the things that need to be done and then I'll be ready to go in. And it seems that some of us uh, have similar thoughts when it's time to come out. It happened, uh, showed up in a couple of the uh, groups. An excitement, certainly, and a readiness uh, to go out into the larger world and yet maybe there's uh, some thoughts as well i just need a little bit more time a, a couple of more days maybe a week to uh, do what needs to be done and then i'll be finished and i'll be ready to come out and then i'll really be ready to go back out there and of course sometimes on either end the coming into retreat and the going out of retreat, there might be some degree of reluctance, some degree of resistance. Maybe some fear of the unknown or fear of the seeming known. Or maybe essentially just simply fear of change. Fear of ending one way and entering into another way. So you might check in with yourself and just to see if there maybe are some of the same kinds of thoughts and feelings, similar conditioned patterns is what they are, so similar conditioned patterns within your mind, your heart, coming up now at the end of this retreat period that maybe you experienced similarly as you were preparing to come here, or that you might have felt at the onset of, the, of this retreat. And of course, we might not feel any anxiety at all in either direction, entering into or coming out of retreat. There's certainly the possibility that one might feel a, a clean, a clear, uh, an open kind of readiness and happiness without any particular expectations or particular worries about moving on to the next thing, the next phase and next form that life will take. At a retreat that I taught a number of years ago now, one person described her, her description of coming out of retreat as feeling like she said she was descending, landing, feeling the force of gravity, as she described it, coming back down to Earth. That was her, her description of how she felt. There's a beautiful piece that was written by the American astronaut Russell Schweikert regarding his experience traveling in outer space, and I'd like to uh, share this with you. You recall staring out there at the spectacle that went before your eyes because now you're no longer inside something with a window looking out at a picture. Now you're out there and there are no frames, there are no limits, there are no boundaries. You're really out there going 17,000 miles an hour, ripping through space, a vacuum. And there's not a sound. There's, the silence. there's a silence, the depth of which you've never experienced before and that silence contrasts so markedly with the scenery you're seeing and with the speed with which you know you're moving. And you think about what you've experienced, what you're experiencing, and why. Do you deserve this, this fantastic experience? Have you earned this in some way? Are you separated out to be touched by God, to have some special experience that others can't have? And you know the answer to that is no. There's nothing you've done, really, to deserve this, to earn this. It's not a special thing for you. And you know very well at that moment, and it comes through to you so powerfully that you're a sensing element for humans. You look down and see the surface of that globe that you lived on all this time. And you know all those people down there, and they are like you. They are you. And somehow you represent them you're up here as a sensing element that point out on the end and that's a humbling feeling and that's a humb- and, it, and that's a humbling excuse me and that's a humbling feeling it's a feeling that you have a responsibility and it's not just for yourself the eye that doesn't see doesn't do justice to the body that's why it's there that's That's why you're out there, and somehow you recognize that you're a piece of this total life. And you're out there on that forefront, and you have to bring it back somehow. And that becomes a rather special responsibility. And it tells you something about your relationship with this thing we call life. So that's a change. That's something new. And when you come back, there's a difference in that world now. There's a difference in that relationship between you and that planet and you and all those other forms of life on that planet because you had that kind of experience. And it's a difference, and it's so precious. And as every one of us know, there is a change about to happen. And of course, many and various changes uh, that occurred during this time in retreat. And so, taking some time now to reflect on the uh, various changes that occurred and the various supports available to you as we make the change out of retreat life and into life in the larger world. One change being the pace of life. At least outwardly, life appears to and feels like it moves a lot faster outside of intensive retreat. And yet we're supported as we move into the larger world with some understanding from our days of practice of actually how quickly and incessantly things change within our own body and mind. How quickly and incessantly things change all around us, even in the slowed-down pace of life in retreat. This understanding, this wisdom, is really a great support and a great protection as we make this change from retreat practice into practice in the world. Reconnecting with a larger world in the day-to-dayness or in the moment-to-momentness, in the incessant and often very fast-paced changes that happen in our daily lives. And maybe we've also had a little taste of the impersonality of change. We've tasted that we can't stop it We can't stop change. That even though we may try, we can't hold on to anything. And maybe we've tasted how painful it is to try. As concentration and mindfulness and kind-heartedness towards yourself, as this developed over the days that we've been here in retreat, We've had some glimpse that whatever it is that we experience in the body, the mind, the heart, that any of these things, any of these experiences, that they come together because of myriad causes and conditions. In truth, really, an unfathomable number of conditions coalescing in that moment. And then, what happens? Well, whatever it is, changes quite quickly or it just simply disappears. The sensations of the breath change quite quickly and then disappear. These tastes, this understanding, has a very deep and beneficial effect on how we think about things and how we relate in the world. There's more clarity in relationship to our deepest goals and our aspirations and what we choose to do or choose not to do. There's more clarity in relationship to the choices that we make. More connection and clarity in relationship to other beings, human and otherwise. More clarity in what's important and appropriate what's wholesome and what's really, truly respectful and kind. These tastes, these understandings are a great support and really a great protection as we reconnect to a larger world. Here in retreat, life is pared down a life of really much more simplicity than most of us have outside of retreat. So certainly this is a change from here to there for most of us. Life in retreat offers really very little outside distraction. We sit, we walk, we listen to instructions and Dharma talks, We eat, we do our yogi jobs, we sleep. You've spoken just a little every few days, as far as we know. (laughs) (laughs) And with this container of simplicity, you've been encouraged and supported to develop a depth and a clarity of focused attention and to mindfully pay attention to what occurs with each breath, and also what occurs in the body, the mind, and the heart. And you've been invited to sense, to see, and to know. Is the mind, is the heart opening to, or is connecting with, and receiving the breath? Or various other occurrences in the body-mind continuum? Or is the attention just spacing out, or disconnected, separated, or caught or stuck in some physical phenomena or some thought form? With all of this practice and all of this learning bringing us closer and closer to sensing and seeing and knowing what brings suffering and what brings ease, calm, joy, and a sense of well-being. We really have been learning to recognize, respect, and care about all of these cycles within our body, mind, and heart. This sensing, seeing, and knowing is really a great support and also a great protection as we reconnect with the larger world. And we're all so similar, really. No matter who we are, where we live, our culture, our age, our ethnic background, our color, really, as some of you have heard me say in uh, interview groups, we're really just variations on a theme, the theme of being human. We're all totally interconnected, totally interdependent on this small planet that we all share. Sila, virtue, living ethically, living respectfully, living harmlessly, wends its way into being the ground of our life really quite naturally as our understanding of what brings suffering and what brings ease, as this deepens, as the understanding deepens and blossoms in our heart and mind. As we come to see and know this through intensive practice. It affects how we communicate, how we use language, and it affects our actions. Seeing into our heart-mind affects and informs the motivation, very important, the motivation behind the words and behind the actions that we take out in the world. And some words from the Buddha regarding this. The thought manifests as the word. The word manifests as the deed. The deed develops into habit. And habit hardens into character. So watch the thought and its ways with care. And let it spring from love born out of concern for all beings. The very first night of our retreat, Pat spoke about the precepts, and and, uh, Winnie spoke about the refuges. There's a particular rendition, uh, we could call it, of the precepts that was written by a woman named Stephanie Kaza from Green Gulch Farm, the Zen Retreat Center Green Gulch Farm, that I'd like to share with you because it's really particularly relevant to daily life in a larger world. And this is what how she's put it together. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow not to kill. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow not to take what is not given. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not engage in abusive relationships. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not speak falsely or deceptively. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not harm self or others through poisonous thought or substance. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not dwell on past errors. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not speak of self separate from others. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not possess any thing or form of life selfishly. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not harbor ill will toward any plant, animal, or human being. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not abuse the great truth of the three treasures. The three treasures being the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. The possibility of engaging the refuges and or the precepts as part of one's daily practice at home so maybe beginning the day possibly beginning the day chanting chanting them to yourself this can be a very powerful aspect of encouraging the purification of our thoughts and words and actions for me and may Maybe also unfolding for some of you, or maybe many of you, over my years of practice in the simplicity of a retreat setting. I've been quite inspired and motivated to simplify my own life, to live my daily life in retreat and outside of retreat uh, in a way that really serves and supports the process of the purification of the heart and mind, which is of course very intimately related to the process of liberation from suffering. And sometimes this happens through the very conscious intention to let go of particular habits of distraction. And as practice deepens, there's more and much more often a letting go, a simplification, you could say, that unfolds really quite naturally with no feeling at all of forcing anything. And we move more and more easily and more naturally to relinquish the habits and the distractions in our life that don't serve this awakening process that we're learning about and that you may really have already committed yourself to. And it's really very often in our daily life around quite ordinary, very mundane aspects of our life. So, a personal example. There was a time when I would get into my car, and I would automatically turn the radio on, the car radio on. And at some point... I began to notice it as a distraction. And so I decided not to turn it on all the time. So I'd begin driving somewhere. And sounds silly, but my hand would kind of automatically begin to come up and move towards the radio knob. I'd kind of watch it, you know, doing that. <laughs> as we know, the force of habit is really, really incredibly strong. So, mindfully, I'd bring my hand back down. And at some point, I began to notice the thought to turn on the radio. And then, choice was available. To or not to. And that was a real turning point. So, looking at another change in this uh, simple and quiet space of retreat, there may have been some big days or some big events for you during this retreat. Ordinary things like, how about the great huge event of the midday meal? Mm-hmm. well, anticipating, what will we have for lunch today? Or before you've maybe even gotten or finished today's lunch, well, what will we have for lunch tomorrow? <laughs> or the big event, for some of you, of having a group practice meeting. a small poem by a man named Nanao Sakaki. He was a wandering Japanese Buddhist poet who uh, died uh, uh, some years ago, not a long time ago, but some years ago. And this poem is called A Big Day. Getting water at the spring, carrying firewood, chattering with the neighbor, the sun goes down, a big day. Many years ago now, Nanau um, used to spend time up at the Lama Foundation, which is just about 30 minutes north of where I live in Taos, New Mexico. And he'd show up at Lama with his small knapsack and a sleeping bag, and he'd stay at the foundation, at the Lama Foundation, for a few days. And they were always really, really happy to put him up. And then he'd head out into the mountains with just this, nothing more than what he'd arrived there with. And he'd often be gone for a couple of weeks and then he'd be back again at Lama. A very dear friend of mine who um, was the coordinator of Lama during those years uh, told me a story about one of these times um, when Nanao had come in for a day or two from the mountains. And he asked her, my friend, and another friend um, if they would like to come out to his camp for dinner in a few days. Which was wonderful. And she said, my friend said that it was just so uh, exciting, and, de- and they were so delighted because this was something very special, something, in fact, that had never uh, been offered before. So, on the uh, appointed uh, day and time, my friend and the other invitee uh, found their way to Nanao's uh, camping spot by following his very careful directions that he'd given them. And when they got there, Nanao was there, but there was no food ready or no food in view for dinner. And he told them, uh, actually, to not bring anything at all with them, that it wouldn't be necessary. He said there was plenty of food. Well, my friend said she, they both thought, the two people that were invited, thought that maybe they'd made a mistake, that uh, maybe this was the wrong day. But Nanao was really delighted to see them when they arrived. And he welcomed them very heartily. And he said, okay, great, hello. Well, now let's go out and find dinner. (laughs) My friends said that they walked, hiked, and picked and dug various wild foods. And then they came back to camp, and they built a fire, and they cooked what needed cooking. And she said they had an incredibly delicious dinner. And she told me that they now understood, finally understood, how Nanao could go out into the mountains for days and sometimes weeks at a time with almost nothing and come back strong and healthy and happy. Now, I'm not saying that that's what we all should do when we leave retreat, <laughs> but it's a really wonderful inspiration, I think. And in its own way once someone in a practice interview spoke about the simplicity of life on retreat as having a good taste this person said so yes we taste it this good taste and we take this good taste with us and it wends its way into our life in many small ways and sometimes in big ways as well And as all of us know, life outside of retreat can be very complex at times. Our home life, our family life, our work or school life. And yet there are ways that we can let go of some of the complexity. And we often do this little by little by little as our practice deepens in and outside of the retreat setting. We make choices in relationship to the work that we do, in the way that we spend time with family and friends and partners. We make choices on how, in how we spend our free time. And those choices change over time as our practice deepens. We really, truly have the possibility of simplifying at least to some degree, almost every aspect of our life. We really truly have the possibility of expanding and deepening this good taste that we take with us from the simplicity of retreat life. And of course, as we all know, there are some complex responsibilities and commitments that we absolutely must continue with. The taste of simplicity in retreat has another very beneficial effect on our life outside of retreat. It affects and inspires how we expend our energy. and It's a little bit of what I just said. How we expend our energy. What we put our energy towards. How we use our energy. Even in the midst of complex activity and relationships and responsibilities. From our experience in retreat practice, we learn and we see and we come to know more clearly when we're off balance in the ways that we engage and use our energy. And we take this knowing into our life outside of retreat. As we intuitively, as we naturally find ourselves letting go of old habits, old, habituated, unskillful ways of being and doing, we find ourselves connecting with more skillful and more wholesome ways of being and doing and we begin to feel more balance within ourselves and within our life as a whole. And this is a gradual process, and we learn a lot about it in retreat practice. And we begin to find in our life outside of retreat, as the balance starts to be more available, we find that we have more energy and more time available for our life to more Directly and more clearly be our practice. So, simplicity inwardly and outwardly in times of retreat and as we reconnect to a larger world. Simplicity being really a very great support and a great protection here and there really a great support and a great protection everywhere along this step-by-step journey. So the possibility of considering our whole life as our practice. Can we develop and deepen our practice in the midst of our everyday lives? really a most essential and important question that I'm sure some of you ask yourselves at different points along the way. And of course the essential ground of this is that we develop, that we begin to integrate a clear, focused attention and mindful awareness based in kindness in all the dimensions of our being, making our body, our speech, our actions, our thoughts, our feelings, our relationships, our work, our play, our creative endeavors, all in some way part of our practice. And so, for instance, we can find many moments throughout our day when we can very simply just bring our attention to the sensations of the breath or the body moving in almost any circumstance, in almost any activity. So from this perspective, really, it's not so different from practice in a retreat setting. Really, all of the conditions, all of the relationships in our lives are wonderful mirrors for our practice. All of the joys and the irritations, the annoyances and the delights, the frustrations and the satisfactions, the pleasant and the unpleasant, the likes and the dislikes, All that we experience in life in retreat, because everything I've listed you've experienced during these five days, I'm sure. (laughs) And all that we experience in life outside of retreat. This is really all a mirror for our practice. There was a woman... uh, a number of years ago now, uh, who sat a retreat uh, that I uh, taught in Israel, and uh, who had, long before uh, I met her, she lived in a spiritual community in France that was guided by the philosopher and spiritual teacher, Gurdjieff. And she told me a story about her time, a, part, a small part of the time that she lived in this community in uh, France. And it's really a wonderful mirror of a particular and rather difficult life situation being the perfect practice. She said that in this community, this Gurdjieff community that she lived in, there was an old man and he was very difficult. She said he was a very difficult and very irascible fellow. She said he was quite messy and quite argumentative. He wouldn't cooperate. He wouldn't help with things, and she said basically he really didn't get along with others in the community. She said that no one there liked him very much, and she said it seemed that he really didn't like many of the people in the community very much either. He tried for a long time to stay in the community, she said, but it got very difficult for him as well as for the others that lived there. And it got so difficult, she said, that finally he left and he, he went to Paris. He said he couldn't bear it anymore, so he left. Well, Gurji followed him to Paris and uh, tried to convince this man to return to the community. But the man said, no, he couldn't. He just couldn't do it. It was just too hard to be there. Well, Gurji f- finally offered him a monthly stipend to come back. <laughs> Well, this was a very poor man and so he couldn't refuse the stipend. So he returned. He came back. Well, when he arrived, everyone, she said she was there at the time, she said everyone in the community was just aghast. (laughs) And they were even more aghast when they found out that he was being paid to be there. (laughs) Because they themselves actually had to pay to live in that community. So, Gurdjieff saw what was going on, and he called a meeting, and he listened to everyone's complaints, and she said, and then he just laughed, and he said (laughs) to everybody who was there, and the man was there as well, this man is yeast for your bread. Without him, you would never learn about anger, irritability, patience, the heart of unconditional kindness and compassion. That's why you pay me and I pay him. (laughs) (laughs) The conditions of our lives, the people in our lives, are really all part of our practice. They're yeast for our bread, yeast for the purification of the heart and the mind. Yeast for our awakening, yeast for our liberation. And in relationship to the uh, four Brahma-viharas, the four divine abidings that Winnie spoke some about (coughs) last evening, there's one teaching uh, amongst the 84,000 teachings, as it said the Buddha gave, uh, one amongst the 84,000. Uh, that the Buddha offered, where the Buddha uses a metaphor of a mother who has four sons. And this metaphor is uh, a a mother who has four sons for the development and the flowering of the four divine abidings, which are metta, loving-kindness, unconditional loving-kindness, karuna, compassion, mudita, appreciative or empathetic joy, and upekka, equanimity. Each of these sons, each of these four sons, because of his particular age and personality and particular karmic uh, manifestations, calls forth from the mother one of the divine abidings. That's how she learned. Well, I have only three sons, but they've managed, really truly managed to be some of my very strongest teachers in many, many, many ways over all the years. Our closest people can be really some of our best teachers. Just simply from them being who they are, what they need from us, what they give to us, and what they show us. So an example... My two oldest sons, who will be 50, uh, 50 years old, uh, next June, they're identical twins, they continue to show me, to teach me a relationship that's really very rare. They're each other's best friends. And although, of course, when they were little guys they um, would fight with each other, as children do, uh, over all these years they never talked about each other in negative or judgmental ways. They never, they really never put each other down, no matter what the other one is feeling or no matter what the other one has done or not done, no matter what's going on in the other's life. And they're not each other's keeper. They've never been disrespectful. They've never been codependent with each other. And I find it to be one of the rarest friendships that I've ever known. And I'm often in awe of it. And I really learn a lot from it. Every aspect of life is potentially a teaching. Every aspect of life has the potential to reveal the truth to us. And some words from the Buddha regarding this. As a bee seeks nectar from all kinds of flowers, seek teachings everywhere. Like a deer that finds a quiet place to graze, seek seclusion and digest, but not cling to all that you have gathered. And a poem uh, that I really like very much. Um, It's from the Turkish, uh, translated from the Turkish, uh, of Edip Koncevar. I'm not sure I pronounced the name right, but that's the best I can do. Uh, The poem is called Table. And it's related to what I just said. (laughs) What the Buddha just said, actually. A man filled with the gladness of living put his keys on the table, put flowers in a copper bowl there. He put his eggs and milk on the table. He put there the light that came in through the window, sound of a bicycle, sound of a spinning wheel, the softness of bread and weather he put there. On the table, the man put things that happened in his mind. What he wanted to do in life, he put that there. Those he loved, those he didn't love, the man put them on the table too. Three times three makes nine. The man put nine on the table. He was next to the window, next to the sky. He reached out and placed on the table endlessness. So many days he had wanted to drink a beer. He put on the table the pouring of that beer. He placed there his sleep and his wakefulness, his hunger and fullness he placed there. Now that's what I call a table. It didn't complain at all about the load, It wobbled once or twice, then stood firm. The man kept piling things on. Can we let go like that? The key to the door, the linchpin of the wheel of the cart that turn by turn by turn moves along this sacred noble path is first and foremost a clear concentrated attention that is very deeply grounded in mindfulness and kindness. And of course it's true that there's some change in the depth and the sustaining quality of the focusing power of the mind that you've developed to whatever degree during these days. A change from how it is in a retreat such as this when we connect to a larger world. And it's true that there's some change in the depth and sustaining quality of mindfulness from how it is in a retreat such as this, as we connect with the larger world. And although the same degree and depth of concentration and mindfulness is not usually totally sustained outside of the retreat setting, the concentration and mindfulness capacities that developed for each of you and are continuing to develop along with the multi-dimensional facets of understanding, the multidimensional facets of wisdom that have blossomed for each one of you in various ways since you've been here in retreat. All of this is really a great support and really a great protection as you connect with the larger world. There's a change, but we don't lose it mindfulness and concentration and the continued blossoming of wisdom are always, always available to us. Many years ago at the end of a two-month retreat with one of my Burmese teachers, Sayadaw Upandita, and two other Burmese monks, I had a brief conversation with one of the monks. And I asked him uh, at that point, uh, it was at the very end of the retreat, and I asked him if there was any advice that he might give me around taking my practice into the whole of my life. And this is what he told me. He said, I mean, it was a long time ago, but I've never forgotten it. This is what he said. You need to eat to stay alive and be healthy. You need to sleep to stay alive and be healthy. You need to meditate to stay alive and be healthy. And that's all he said to me. Good advice. (laughs) There are some particular ways that I and others have found uh, to be quite helpful in bringing a simple and yet direct and immediate concentrated mindful attention uh, into our lives. <clears throat> now one suggestion that I heard from another teacher, I thought it was an interesting one and a good one, is that at the end of each hour of the day, take just one or two minutes to just stop, be still, and simply connect with the breath at the Anupana spot. briefly. So, however long your waking day is, that could be 15 to 30 minutes, say, of a very directly focused, mindful time. With each of these minutes, then, in fact, having an effect on the moments that follow. Another way to carry our daily carry practice into our daily lives is to remember at moments <laughs> uh, during the day to touch into our physical sensations through contact. As we spoke about in every mor- a little bit every morning in terms of the instructions touch into it the feet on the ground your bottom touching the chair your hands touching each other or your legs and hands touching feeling the clothing touching, as Pat said one morning. I just now felt my teeth touching each other, my tongue touching the roof of my mouth. Mindfulness and concentration in that moment of connecting are immediately connected with and strengthened every single time we do this. And I think that the only hard thing about doing these very, very brief meditation sessions, we could call them, is what? It's to remember to do them. That's the hard thing about it. <clears throat> and in relationship to that, I, I know some people who put little notes to themselves around their house, in their, their home, or in their workplace, or in their study, to remind them to check in. So, for instance, maybe a note on the bathroom mirror, just a note, sticky note that says, breathe. Or maybe a little stand-up note on your desk at home or at work that says, still breathing. Or maybe, meta now, or here now. There uh, Many years ago, when I was the resident teacher here at IMS for the staff, there was a fellow who Uh, worked in the front office. And he had a little small stand-up note on his desk that said, buttocks. (laughs) Now, it made everybody laugh, of course, like you all did. But it was to remind him uh, to bring his attention to the touch points of his buttocks on the chair every now and then. And and then it got old, and he didn't notice it anymore, so he had to make up a new one. But that was a good one. The director of the Forest Refuge, the long-term practice center just up the hill from here, some of you may be aware of it. He's programmed his computer to sound the ring of a mindfulness bell every 45 minutes. And he does this, he did this, to remind him to stop and to check in with his breath for a couple of moments. And how did I? I found out about this because I was having a meeting with him in his office. I didn't know he'd programmed his computer. We're sitting there talking, and ding, the mindfulness bell goes. He stops. I stopped. We breathed. A few breaths. And then we talked about it. And I thought, wow, what a wonderful idea. Walking meditation can be. A very important and actually quite powerful aspect of our practice in the world. An important aspect of continuing to connect with and to strengthen concentration and mindfulness. I mean, all of us walk at least a few miles going from place to place, maybe through a day, certainly through a week, and maybe many more miles through a week or over time. And we can make some of this walking uh, a time for practice. So again, when I was the uh, resident teacher here for staff, my workroom and my living space was up on the second floor in the same room that I was meeting with groups, uh, room M203, uh, during this retreat. That's where I lived for four years. And because I did many, many practice interviews or practice meetings with staff, and I had lots of other meetings as well, I really didn't have very much time during the day to do any walking meditation. So at one point I decided that every time I would be going up and down the stairs, that would be my walking practice. So once I figured that out and decided it, I did it most days, quite a bit, because I had to go up and down a lot. I had to eat, come down to eat, you know, for one thing. <laughs> um, Now at one point, um, a staff member came in for an individual practice interview and he was obviously quite agitated and with a fair amount of difficulty he told me that he was very upset because he said I was ignoring him. He said that he felt abandoned by me. He said that whenever he passed me on the stairs (laughs) that I wouldn't even look at him. And he was wondering if I was angry with him. Well, of course, I told him that going up and down the stairs was my walking meditation time, and that I certainly hadn't abandoned him. I absolutely was not angry at him. It's just that I was practicing as deeply as I could going up and down the stairs. Well, in a moment, as soon as he heard that, completely changed his attitude, and he said how happy he was for me. He thought it was a great idea. People may not always understand what you're up to when you integrate practice into your daily life in small ways, but do it anyway. Use your life wisely. And as I think you all know, if you didn't know it before the retreat, you probably know it now, it's really helpful to connect with others who practice. And we have all certainly seen this. the benefit of this uh, as has been mentioned by some of you here in retreat. If you're not connected at least sometimes to a group, even just a group of two or maybe three, to sit with once in a while, check and see if there's maybe a sitting group somewhere in your area. And if there isn't, start one which might mean just asking one or two other people um, that you know or that you connect with in some way, maybe you don't know them personally, maybe who meditate or who would like to learn to meditate, to join you once a week or once every other week. And maybe you sit together first. And then maybe you read something out loud or uh, about the teachings and the practice. Or maybe you listen to instructions, recorded instructions. Maybe you listen online to a Dharma talk together. And then maybe take turns every time you meet of who chooses what you're going to listen to. And then after you listen to a Dharma talk or share a reading, then you maybe spend a little time speaking about it with each other, talking about it. And maybe also share some things about your practice with each other. And also it can be helpful, depending, but it can be helpful at times uh, to maybe pick a theme for a few weeks uh, to focus on. The Buddha, in a conversation with Ananda, Ananda one of his chief disciples, spoke about the tremendous importance of the connection with spiritual friends. And the Venerable Ananda said in speaking with the Buddha, he said, half this holy life, O Lord is good and noble friends, companionship with the good, association with the good. And the Buddha responded to Ananda by saying, don't say that, Ananda. It's the whole of this holy life, this friendship, this companionship, this association with the good. Use your life wisely. Use your energy wisely. every moment as much as possible, be a conscious intent to practice. Meditation is one of the great arts of life, perhaps the greatest, and it can take place anytime, anywhere, when we have the intention to live awake. As we go into the larger world, if we're patient and determined in our practice, it's really inevitable that calm, tranquility, and joy increase. It's inevitable that peace increases and that wisdom increases. It's inevitable that our ability to live a beneficial and compassionate life increases. In another uh, brief Nanao Sakaki poem, if you have the time to chatter, read books. If you have the time to read, walk into the mountain, desert, and ocean. If you have time to walk, sing songs and dance. If you have time to dance, sit quietly, you happy, lucky idiot. (laughs) And I can't resist one last Nanao poem. Really, uh, as a tribute from him, we could say to our practice. And he calls this poem a love letter. He wrote it in Shinano, Japan, in uh, May of 1976. And it's uh, one of the poems in the collection of his work called Break the Mirror. I like the title. Within a circle of one meter, you sit, pray, and sing. Within a shelter ten meters large, you sleep well. Rain sounds a lullaby. Within a field a hundred meters large, raise rice and goats. Within a valley a thousand meters large, gather firewood, water, wild vegetables, and amanitas. Within a forest ten kilometers large, play with raccoons, hawks, poison snakes, and butterflies. Mountainous country Shinano, a hundred kilometers large where someone lives leisurely, they say. Within a circle 10,000 kilometers large, go see the southern coral reef in summer or the winter drifting ices in the sea of Oksk, Within a circle 10,000 kilometers large, walking somewhere on the earth. Within a circle 100,000 kilometers large, swimming in the sea of shooting stars. Within a circle a million kilometers large, upon the spaced-out yellow mustard blossoms, the moon in the east, the sun in the west. Within a circle 10 billion kilometers large, pop far out of the solar system, mandala. Within a circle 10,000 light-years large, the galaxy full blooming in spring. Within a circle one billion light years large, Andromeda is melting away into snowing cherry flowers. Now within a circle ten billion light years large, all thoughts of time and space are burnt away. There again, you sit, pray, and sing. You sit, pray, and sing. And closing the talk with one more poem by a Native Native American woman named Joy Harjo. And she calls this Eagle Poem. To pray you open your whole self to sky, to earth, to sun, to moon to one whole voice that is you And know there is more that you can't see, can't hear, can't know, except in moments steadily growing, and in languages that aren't always sound, but other circles of motion. Like Eagle that Sunday morning over Salt River, circled in blue sky and wind, swept our hearts clean with sacred wings. We see you, we see ourselves, and know that we must take the utmost care and kindness in all things. Breathe in, knowing we are made of all this. And breathe, knowing we are truly blessed because we were born and die soon in a true circle of motion. Like eagle rounding out the morning inside us. We pray that it will be done in beauty. In beauty. And let's sit quietly for... Just a moment. May all of the wholesome energies and the fruits that manifest through our practice serve with immeasurable impartiality, without bias, without prejudice, towards the welfare, the happiness, and the awakening of all beings everywhere.